The police officer was making his usual rounds when he spotted the man. His beat took him into an alley in the heart of the burgeoning metropolis of Phoenix. Maybe that path, connecting first and second streets between Monroe and Adams, was part of his regular route. Or maybe he ducked in there around 3 o'clock in the afternoon to find some shelter and shade from the warm June sun. Either way, he still had a job to do and kept his eyes open for anything amiss. That's why, as his walk took him past a small side alley, he spotted a body lying on the ground. Rushing up, the officer soon knew there was nothing he could do. Perhaps he recognized the body. Perhaps he knew this particular man, who was nearly 80, was a regular in the area. Perhaps he knew also that the man's health had started to fail recently, and he had been prone to bouts of illness that caused him to collapse. Perhaps he even knew some of his incredible life and hardships these past few years. Then again, perhaps the officer knew none of that. The only thing we can say for certain is that this police officer knew one thing that fateful afternoon of June 24, 1902. That Charles DeBriel Poston, the father of Arizona, was dead. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 55, The Pyramid on the Hill. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all caught your breath with our brief pause in the chronological narrative last week and are ready to start sprinting full ahead again as we turn our attention back to the politics of the Arizona Territory. I don't want to get too much into the blow-by-blow of the territorial legislature like we did back in episode 51, But instead, I want to take a look at how the territory was continuing to evolve and change. There will be a few times going forward where I'll mention some of the more memorable or interesting bills being passed, but in general, I want to take a broader view of things. And to kick things off, I think we should turn to the elections around the second territorial legislature. You might recall the elections for the first territorial legislature happening on July 18, 1864. But in the next September, right as that legislature was assembling, the first regular elections occurred, so the men who are going to make up the second legislature. And this race is notable because of the contest for what was considered the plushiest political job one could possibly have. All right, pop quiz time. Do you remember what that is from our previous episodes? That's right, a full five points to everyone out there who remembered that it was the one assignment that got you out of the backwoods and back to civilization. That is, being the congressional delegate. Now, that post was currently filled by Charles Poston, who had stepped out of his role as superintendent of Indian affairs to take it for a few short months until the election could be held. Well, he apparently liked the gig enough that he decided to run for a full term in September 1864. However, here he would be frustrated by the other person who threw his hat into the ring for the position, the governor himself, John N. Goodwin. In the heated election that followed, 
Goodwin would actually blow Poston out of the water, gaining 707 votes to Poston's 260. In fact, a third candidate even beat Poston with 381 votes. Of course, Poston, who had actually not even bothered returning to Arizona to campaign for the position, took the result of the election graciously, and in the spirit of patriotism and accepting the decision of the voters of Arizona, dutifully stepped aside to allow Goodwin to enter the role. Just kidding. Poston, despite his own flagging popularity, instantly charged improprieties in the election and claimed Goodwin had not won fairly. In an open letter to the people of Arizona, Poston accusingly said the governor only secured his seat through a combination of federal and military support. That is to say that the group of federal appointees had drummed up support for Goodwin, and that included soldiers who were stationed in the territory, but were not, of course, true Arizonans. Early state historian Thomas Farish says Poston even planned to challenge Goodwin's claim to the seat in the Congress itself, but he never went through with it. And even though there was no real evidence of a conspiracy to hand Goodwin the seat, Major General McDowell in San Francisco put out an order that soldiers were not allowed to be involved in territorial politics at all, except, of course, to vote. But it is true that, like in most territories at the time, there was a little cabal who planned out how elections were quote-unquote supposed to go. And in Arizona, this cabal were the federally appointed officeholders, or what Poston called the Federal Ring. Goodwin's election could be called the first real victory of this Federal Ring, as it was partially engineered through the support of Territorial Secretary Richard C. McCormick's Daily Minor newspaper, which helped mold public opinion. And McCormick's reason for supporting Goodwin's election? Why, crass self-interest, of course. McCormick was eyeing the governor's seat for himself, so helping Goodwin get what he wanted got McCormick so much closer to what he wanted. As for Poston, well, we'll get into his path a little later in today's episode, but know that he ran for the delicate spot once again in 1866, but would lose to another member of this federal ring, Coles Bashford, who had been Arizona's original attorney general. Which leads me into my next point. Arizona politics for the first decade or so was really a revolving door of prominent figures, moving from one high-powered job to the next. For example, McCormick would be appointed governor of the Arizona Territory by President Andrew Johnson, before he too would run for the delegate seat in Congress in 1868, a seat that he would keep for a couple of elections. But I want to wrap up with Goodwin, who took his seat in Congress on March 4, 1865, and would hold it for the next two years. However, McCormick, his replacement, wouldn't be officially installed as the governor until April 10, 1866. So, despite the fact that he wasn't even in Arizona and McCormick was really acting as governor for that year, Goodwin went ahead and drew a salary for both positions that he technically held. The U.S. Treasury Department would ask him several times to pay back that year of gubernatorial salary, which was close to $2,700, or just under $48,500 today. As late as 1884, this debt was still on the Treasury Department's books, 
and there is no evidence that Goodwin ever actually paid it back. Historian Howard R. Lamar summed up the first territorial governor as, quote, essentially a mining speculator who had used his office as a stepping stone to wealth, end quote. Following his stint as congressional delegate, Goodwin moved to New York to practice law. He then, and I find this bit really hilarious considering the financial improprieties we just talked about, joined the Internal Revenue Service. He died at Paraiso Springs, California in 1887 at the age of 63. Now, during his time in Congress, Goodwin does not appear to have done that much, which makes him a lot like Poston before him. There is some mention of him proposing an amendment to the current law that would have allowed Arizona to keep enlisted the Mexicans and Amerindians that made up the Arizona Volunteers that we talked about in episode 53, but congressional records don't have anything on the books about it. Farish remarks that if he did this at all, it was most likely proposed to a committee that shot it down out of hand, and it was never brought up again. The only speech on record that we have for him on the floor of Congress dives into our next thorny issue, Arizona's lost county of Paiute. In December 1865, the first bill passed by the second territorial legislature was to form the county of Paiute out of the top half of Mojave County. And remember that Mojave County didn't stop at the Colorado River like it does today, but formed this weird giant triangle that jutted out to the west. Basically, imagine if you took Arizona's northern state line today and extended it west to hit the current Nevada state line with California. McCormick actually recommended splitting off Paiute County from the top portion of Mojave County in his opening address to the legislature because of the high number of settlers moving into the area to farm along the Colorado River. The original county seat was a community called Colville, but was moved a bit south to the tiny Mormon settlement called St. Thomas. However, this is where politics comes into play as Congress decided to give Paiute County, and really parts of Mojave County too, to Nevada in May 1866. I've seen it written that the reason for this was the discovery of gold in the area, and that Congress thought that Nevada, which had already become a state, could better exploit this new resource. Arizona positively railed against this. In one of two petitions passed by the legislature and sent to Congress to stop this action, they said, quote, It is the unanimous wish of the inhabitants of Paiute and Mojave counties, and indeed all the constituents of your memorialist, that the territory in question should remain with Arizona for the convenient transaction of official and other business, and on every account they greatly desire it. End quote. This is also where Goodwin gave his speech on the Congress floor, asking that Nevada be given a chunk of Utah instead of taking a chunk of Arizona. He also argued that while the Nevada legislature had to vote to take over the land, no provision was given for Arizona to vote against letting it go. But though Goodwin spoke against the bill, and in his speech supported amendments to change it and stop the transfer of Arizona land, when it finally came up for a vote on the House floor, 
he didn't offer any amendments of his own or really try to derail it in any way. In January 1867, Nevada voted to accept the land, and the northwestern peak of Arizona was begrudgingly handed over. Of course, this change didn't happen overnight. The county of Paiute was still represented in the territorial legislature as late as 1868, and it wouldn't be until 1871 that the legislature rescinded the act creating the county and transferring what remained back to Mojave County. Furthermore, the post offices for places such as St. Thomas, St. Joseph, and Overton were listed on federal records as being in the territory of Arizona into the 1870s. And in case you are wondering, the communities of St. Thomas and Colville, once the leaders of this brave new county, no longer exist. But that's mainly due to the fact that the land they sat on now exists at the bottom of Lake Mead. And the chunk of land handed over to Nevada? Most of that is now Clark County, and is dominated by another sleepy Mormon settlement which I'm sure hasn't changed at all in the past 155 years. Las Vegas. Now, shout out here to listener Kelly W., who wrote me to say that the land issue was actually not completely resolved until 1982. You see, since Nevada was already a state when the land was transferred over, its constitution did not include this new territory in its written boundaries. Fast forward to the 1970s, when someone got a speeding ticket in Clark County, but contested it in court by making the argument that the laws of the state of Nevada could not be enforced outside its boundaries as defined in the state constitution. And believe it or not, the judge let him off. However, this legal strategy caught everyone's attention, and eventually an amendment was approved to say that Clark County was indeed a part of Nevada. Thanks again, Kelly. That's just the sort of minutiae I love. Funny enough, this issue with Nevada isn't the only land claim that Arizona had to contend with during these years. Farish tells us that the territory of Utah made the argument in 1865 that the natural barrier that is the Grand Canyon essentially cuts off the northwestern slice of Arizona from the rest of the territory, and that said slice would more comfortably fit into Utah. Personally, I kind of agree with this, especially if you consider today that Interstate 15 runs for 20-some-odd miles inside the state and only serves to connect Las Vegas with St. George. However, Arizona was pretty defensive about its boundaries at this point and was able to beat back this half-hearted attempt. Though I have to laugh because Farish says Arizona kept the desirable land north of the Grand Canyon, though it, quote, has not been thoroughly explored or densely populated, end quote. And that last part is still pretty true today, though I guess I'm happy that the Vermilion Cliffs, Jacob Lake, and the North Rim of the Grand Canyon are still inside of Arizona's boundaries. Then, of course, there was the dispute with California over Arizona City, or today's Yuma. If you can remember back to when we went through the whole surveying process of the southern border, 
The idea was to have the border start at the middle of the junction of the Gila and the Colorado, and then head due west to hit one marine league south of San Diego. But here's the thing. The Colorado makes this weird bend right around there, so even when properly surveyed, it kind of left this chunk of land south and west of the river, technically in California. This chunk of land, approximately 150 acres, sat across the river from Fort Yuma and contained much of the original heart of Yuma. But this was the location of important ferry crossings and other business interests, so naturally, neither side was really willing to relinquish it. As early as 1864, the Arizona legislature petitioned Congress to hand it over to them, making the pretty accurate point that it was too far away from any seat of government in California for it to really belong to that state. Of course, California didn't feel like backing down, and for several years, Arizona and California went round and round about it, often poking a lot of fun at each other's positions. Finally, though, in the early 1870s, it appears that this was resolved amicably, and Yuma officially became a part of Arizona, which it really was the whole time. Of course, we shouldn't condemn California, Utah, and Nevada for trying to seize territory. That's because James H. McClintock, in his History of Arizona, records that the territory actually tried to do the same thing to a bit of southwestern New Mexico. According to McClintock, in 1877, Arizona claimed business and social interest in New Mexico's Grand County and sought to have it added to their territory. This bit never ended up going anywhere, but it is a historical footnote too fascinating not to pass along. Oh, and before I forget, Arizona continued to ask very loudly for it to please, please, please be given a seaport on the Gulf of California. I don't think I have to tell you how that went. Amid all this political and territorial reshuffling, the legislature continued its work. Now, most of what they did is boring bureaucratic minutiae that I don't want to bother you with, like setting up offices such as county attorneys and district auditors. But just for some housekeeping, here are some notable things passed in 1865 and 1866. First was a resolution welcoming the end of the Civil War and the Reconstructionist policies of Presidents Johnson and later Ulysses S. Grant. Following close on its heels was another resolution expressing shock and horror at the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln in April 1865. Another pressing matter was the creation of an ad valorem, or property tax, of 25 cents per $100 of assessed value. Though the main source of territorial income remained the federal payroll, this did help a little the situation I described in episode 51, where there was really no money coming into the state coffers. And speaking of taxes, Farish passes along an amusing anecdote that when the territory first started setting up taxes, the citizens in Prescott were allowed to self-report the value of the property they owned. The historian said this was the only time he had ever heard of that a citizen could just decide their property value, but said, quote, Arizonans, however, at that time were patriotic. I think very truthfully 
that there was no disposition on the part of those of American birth to in any way evade the payment of taxes. End quote. Okay, well, you know, if you say so. However, at the same time, he also relates that in February 1866, the territorial treasurer had to send a letter to all the counties to remind them to turn over their territorial taxes in order to avoid a lawsuit. Apparently, he had gotten nothing from Yuma County the previous year, so maybe patriotism wasn't the general rule after all. And since I touched on marriage at the end of the last episode about the legislature, I should probably mention a couple bills about that as well to round out this recap. The first bill is still part of Arizona legal code today, which is that the property accumulated during a marriage belongs jointly to the husband and wife. The second bill, however, is definitely not still part of our legal code, mainly because it banned interracial marriage. Seriously, the bill said a white person could not legally marry a black person or a mixed-race individual or an Indian or a Mongolian. If that last bit sounds a little specific, from what I can tell, it seems that Mongolian was a generic term for someone of Asian descent. One historian did note that this law was actually still on the books for more than a hundred years, until a Japanese-American schoolteacher in Tucson went to court to be able to marry a white woman. How far we've come. Now, I want to round out today by discussing the fate of the man who lost his seat in Congress at the beginning of the episode, Charles Poston. When I first introduced him way back in episode 30, I started by talking about Poston Butte, that short hike near Florence with the pyramid that is his final resting place. I didn't imagine then that it would take so long to get to how he ended up being buried there, but it did, so now it's finally time to take the father of Arizona on the final leg of his journey for this podcast. So, what do you do after you've been defeated twice for re-election to the cushiest job to be had in all of Arizona? or at least related to Arizona. For Poston, the answer was to practice law. He set up a law practice around Washington, D.C., which harkened back to his days as a law clerk in Tennessee before he set off west to find his fortune. However, according to one newspaper obituary, he found being chained to a law desk too irksome to satisfy his wandering nature. That's why in 1867, he left on a tour of Europe, stopping in London and Paris, from which he would produce a short book called Europe in Summertime. He received a little bit of a treat in 1868 when U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward tapped him to travel to China to deliver what is known as the Burlingame Treaty, which set up a friendly relation between the two countries and allowed for more immigration. The treaty was signed in Washington, D.C. in 1868, and then again in Beijing the following year. Poston was along for the ride, both to help deliver the treaty to the Chinese emperor, but also to study irrigation and immigration in Asia. His companion for this journey was none other than J. Ross Brown, the journalist and writer who had accompanied him on his trip to Arizona following his appointment as superintendent of Indian Affairs. 
Poston's compass seems to forever have pointed west, so after finishing his assignment in China, he just kept heading that way, moving into India and Egypt. While in India, Poston became fascinated, some might say enamored, with Zoroastrianism, and would write a few books about this time in his life that would be published under the titles of The Parsis and The Sun Worshippers of Asia. Eventually, he wound up in Paris again, and then moved to London, where he would stay for another six years. I actually hinted at this many episodes ago, when I remarked that Poston was at the bedside of that other notable Arizona resident, Sylvester Mowry, when the latter died from Bright's disease. During this time, Poston supported himself by working for newspapers, both English and American, and practicing law. He returned to the United States in time for the country's centennial in 1876. Poston then became involved in Samuel Tilden's failed campaign for president that year, hoping to garner an appointment as the U.S. consul in London. But since Tilden didn't win, his consolation prize was being sent back to Arizona. In the waning months of his presidency, Ulysses S. Grant appointed him Register of the U.S. Land Office in Florence. And Poston would serve in this post between 1877 and 1879. His time in Florence was especially notable for what was nearby, the cone-shaped hill rising just north of the town that had been known as Primrose Hill. Poston was taken with this spit of rock and soon struck upon a fantastic idea. Harkening back to his time spent in Asia, Poston wanted to construct a Zoroastrian temple on top of the hill. He set to work on this project and actually paid to have a road built to its summit, at the cost of several thousands of dollars, according to one source. While he worked on his temple, he planted a large flag that was emblazoned with the image of a sun. Unfortunately, that's as far as he got before his funds ran out completely and he was never able to realize his dream. He even tried to reach out to the Zoroastrians in India for help with the project, but never received anything in return. The whole affair caused everyone to look at him a little strangely, with one source calling him a, quote, queer genius, and calling the entire idea, quote, Poston's folly. He never quite gave up on the idea, however, and one source says he actually purchased the whole hill, known today as Poston Butte, in 1883. And just because the father of Arizona seems connected to pretty much everyone in Arizona history, he bought the title from none other than James Rivas, the notorious con man and self-styled Baron of Arizona, who claimed that he owned thousands upon thousands of acres of southern Arizona. Poston would go on to serve in various positions in both Nogales and El Paso, and his obituary adds that he worked for the Department of Agriculture in Phoenix. In the 1890s, he also appears to have been involved in mining operations again. In 1894, he published his Building a State in Apache Land, which was a key resource for me for both the life of Poston and Tubac in the 1850s. 
But Poston's fortunes mostly took a nosedive during the last decade or so of his life, and he had used most of his money on his failed temple project. However, when the territorial legislature learned of his plight, they decided that something had to be done to honor the father of Arizona. So they voted Poston a pension of $25 a month in 1899, which was raised to a whopping $35 a month in 1901. During his last years, Poston continued to write and became well-known and sought after as a lecturer. The late Tom Kellenborn, an Apache Junction resident who was the keeper of all local lore and a font of information about Arizona history, wrote that Poston gave one of his last lectures in Phoenix in 1899 at the age of 74. This lecture, titled How I Spent Christmas, recounted his having celebrated the holiday with various influential figures, including humorous Mark Twain, one of the founders of modern Italy, Giuseppe Garibaldi, and various European monarchs. However, and I mentioned this back in episode 30, he would tell the lecture hall that the best Christmas he ever spent was the one he celebrated in Tubac in 1856. Despite his pension, Poston's fortunes never did improve, and he was living in poverty and squalor in Phoenix during his last years. According to a contemporary newspaper obituary, he seems to have preferred to be left alone, and his health had taken a turn for the worse. On June 24, 1902, neighbors reported hearing a noise in the alley where he lived. After Poston's body was found, all indications were that he suffered from heart failure, and had anyone come upon him shortly afterward, he might have been saved. As it was, though, the father of Arizona died penniless and alone in a Phoenix alleyway at the age of 77. Despite his wish to be buried on top of Poston Butte, his body was originally interred in a pauper's grave in Phoenix. However, the state eventually paid to relocate his body to the top of Poston Butte and erected the pyramid that stands there today. Now, I've seen that this was done in 1925 for Poston's 100th birthday in a ceremony led by Governor George W.P. Hunt. However, the monument itself says that it was erected in 1907, and since that is the date literally set in concrete, it feels more authoritative. Charles Poston was many things. Active and energetic, he set out on an adventurer's life early on, and he saw the world. His mining operation at Tubac set the stage for American occupation of Arizona in the 1850s and helped put the Sonoran Desert on the map. His tireless promotion of Arizona, and quite frankly himself, in the 1860s help make it an official U.S. territory, which was the necessary stepping stone to become a state. The honorific Father of Arizona, which was used in his lifetime, could be applied to many people in the state's history, but Poston is definitely among them. So I'm glad we could give him one last farewell and thank you for all his efforts to make Arizona what it is today. But with Poston now gone and buried, we are going to wrap things up this week. Please join me next week 
when we return to Amerindian affairs and learn about the tribe that would go to war with Arizona's inhabitants and were feared to the point that soldiers would say they would rather fight the Apache. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.